Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview. And it truly is fantastic because it is, uh, it is a funny world out there. We see so much so much division, so much hatred, so much, so much uh, polarization in our worlds, where we think we're in 2022, how can we be? We are such a melting pot around the world, yet how can you truly fight a war or be truly on one side of barricades when really the, it, is, it is not helping anyone, it's causing more problems, and it's just weird. So that is something where every day I shake my head and I've got another person who clearly shakes her head about it because Laurie Adams Brown, my guest today, she is so into one key message, inclusion, the inclusion of actually coming together around the table and actually be honest and, and full of integrity, authentic with who we are and by living a life that we can be proud of with that we can influence other people and maybe that is exactly what this world needs so laurie i'm so happy that you're on my show welcome thank you it's lovely to be here mm. uh, when i when i look around my dinner table i've got a german sitting there i was married to an english girl um we lived around the world my one of my sons is australian the other one is a kiwi so there are four nations sitting around my dinner table. <laughs> how yeah. is it? How is it with you? How many? How many people are in you? How many? How many countries are in you? And how many people are sitting around your family? Oh, I love this question. Thank you for starting off with that. Um, well, it's complicated. I'll put it that way. When you ask me where I'm from, I don't have a straight up answer, and neither does any of the five people that sit typically around my dinner table in my home, um, for the reason that I was born in the U.S., raised in Venezuela, with a little time in Costa Rica, friends from international school that I grew up in. Then I lived in Indonesia for 10 years. I lived in Singapore for 10 years, and now I'm in Silicon Valley in California. My husband grew up in Thailand and India in international schools. We met in college in the States, and then he went on that journey with me. And then we raised our three teenagers in Indonesia and Singapore, and they are very confused about where they're from. So, <laughs> <laughs> so true, true, two cosmopolitan families, because we yeah. lived in Australia, in the UK. We lived, uh, we visited uh, so many places, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, in all fairness, it is, uh, there are so many beautiful people around this world, when you boil it down to the key ingredients of laughter, food, and connection, um, you can have a wonderful, wonderful time in so many places, regardless what the skin colors or what the, the maybe political or religious beliefs are there. And that is that is beautiful. So we both have learned our lessons um, through through being out there. But of course, we don't start up like that. You had a bit of a head start. I thought I was German. I'm German through and through. Um, until <laughs> I, you know, at the end of my medical studies, I, I didn't know where to go. The wall had just come down in Germany. Uh, everything was uh, in uproar, you could get a, a doctor to mow your lawn uh, because you know with with uh, the, the wall coming down suddenly Berlin, who had three medical universities, one closed. So there were yeah, five thousand doctors and and staff were on the street. So yeah, fat chance for me to get a job. So 
And there I sat one day, sat on the toilet, read through our doctor pamphlet there. And there was a little German doctors wanted. Well, fast forward four weeks, I was in the UK and I never looked back. So for me, the circumstances were there that drove me out. How was your life? Why were you in international schools? What did your parents get up to 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 do that? Yeah, no, great question. And I would love to hear more also about your experience because I can only imagine how hard that was, what you went through and so much trauma that it's probably still with you to this day. Mm. And I think that, um, yeah, I would just say my parents were um, with a nonprofit. They did kind of international relief and development missionary type work. So my mother was a nurse and started medical clinics in Venezuela that helped at the time, if you know much about Venezuela, Mm. there in the 80s and 90s, there were Colombians that were coming to Venezuela for a better life due to some of the things that had gone on with the drug cartel situation, Mm. especially in Colombia. However, Mm. now it's flipped because of, you know, what happened in the later part of the Chavez years and now under Nicolas Maduro, it's Venezuelans that are going to Colombia now. Um, And so, but when I was growing up, you know, my mom started a medical clinic that's still going to this day. And I grew up kind of translating for Venezuelan uh, American doctors that would come from the U.S. Mm. and help with free medical clinics. So did a little stuff as a little girl learning about learning enough about medicine to know I did not want to go into the medical field. (laughs) But I'm also realizing that with medicine, it's a kind of body, mind and soul kind of work. And so, you know, people come in and you're you're translating for doctors that are treating the patients but there's a lot of trauma that people have gone through especially if they've come from another country and had to leave under difficult circumstances sort of how you had to leave as well and then um at the same time you know the body keeps the score so knowing exactly what was going on uh with people's bodies meant you had to deal with trauma right mm. at the same time which is a spiritual thing as well as a an emotional and a kind of a brain thing. So um, yeah, early on, I remember understanding that in a new way. Uh, my dad was a professor, like a seminary professor, and he helped start some churches. And uh, we worked in a lot of very impoverished situations, um, kind of as a family. So I grew up, I would say, in a family that wanted to make a difference, wow. which is why I think that I ended up going into international relief and development in my life too. So. Wow, wow. <laughs> and it's what a beautiful, humbling way of of seeing actually literally other people uh, often just barely surviving and still showing happiness, showing showing their emotions. It's a very different world to grow up in compared with mm-hmm. if you were in a more, I don't know, normal. Well, what is normal? But you know, if, in each and every country, there's sort of what most people do kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my my childhood with all its trauma it had, um, was still from a from an academic point of view, still regular schools, um, etc. Mm-hmm. In your in your schooling system, was there integration? Was there actually inclusion practiced, or were there cliques that clearly were were there bullies, um, or was actually was that merging that melting pot of an international school was that actually beneficial? This is an excellent question, actually, because as I've processed it now that I'm, you know, several decades later in my 40s, I would say there have been some articles written in the last couple of years around international schools and how some international schools, even though it is considered this very inclusive environment, that there were people who felt somewhat marginalized. 
in oh. those environments, depending on where the international school is located. I would say oh. for the most part, my international school was very inclusive, way more than what I see, like what my kids are in here in the US and California yeah. in public schools, which feels a lot more um, inherently segregated on its own and more cliquish. But in my international school, I would say it was much more inclusive, that environment. However, I would say that because it was in Venezuela, there, um, there definitely were um, situations where there was some bullying for sure. Um, and I would say um, some of the East Asian students may have experienced that a little more than the others because of that environment. Venezuela is a very warm culture overall, very receiving, um, very inclusive, where they there's a lot more belonging you would probably experience there than maybe other places. Um, but in even in the international school environment, I would say because East Asians were probably more of a minority, um, that at times they may have experienced some bullying. So um, yeah, I, there's one student in particular that I wish I could find and reach out to who is from Hong Kong. And I just wonder at this age, how he would experience what we all kind of grew up together with. So. Oh, oh, well, okay. This, my show has got uh, 1,400 or so views typically that about from, for, for each, each sentence. So maybe, maybe, Hey guys, <laughs> 40 years ago, Venezuela, <laughs> if any one yeah. of you is actually listening, I think, Hey, she looks familiar. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Look into the show notes down there. There will be the description That's right. where you can find yeah. Lori. <laughs> But yeah. I mean, that, uh, you are telling the story of our lives because we all do stupid things, sometimes ourselves. Sometimes we just stand by and we hate each other later for not taking action and not maybe being there for someone who is getting bullied. Um, there's, mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's any person in this world who has not got such regrets. And, and that is where some of us who have gone through maybe not such nice lives and have seen a lot of darkness and who are now coming out the other side, that they are much more willing to put their money where their mouth is in in the recovery world it's called making amends so the step seven yeah. uh, step eight and nine and that is absolute beautiful powerful stuff where you actually mm -hmm. go out and and try to make this world a better place um so this is the most beautiful thing that one can do but unfortunately it takes takes typically darkness and trauma to make you come to that point to realize that it's not just good enough to just sit back and think oh i wish i had done that different but yet you actually put your money where your mouth is maybe we come to that later um making amends but i'm intrigued so here you were this young young girl which was probably a bit more mature compared maybe with other with other Uh, girls, because you had to, you were traveling around, you were um, in in societies where where it was more challenging for you. Was there, I mean, Venezuela at that time in the 80s, was there much, was a machismo kind of thing? What was the, 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 the rule, <laughs> you know, how were women treated? Yeah, this is an excellent question as well. It's complicated. I, I look at it now through the lens of being in the U.S. Mm. under what is still patriarchy. I look at it also through the lens sort of backwards of living in Indonesia. I lived under Sharia law for, you know, the 10 uh, years I was there and where uh, hijab and everything, even though I'm a Christian, yeah. the work that I did was in a place where they're, you know, 
99.9% Muslim. And so that was the law. And so, um, you know, in order just to be, I'm very much a kind of person that believes that when you go into someone's culture, you need to be respectful and other than doing things that would be against your own morality or conscience, you know, we can adapt. We can, I didn't drink alcohol or eat pork and, you know, Mm. I covered my head. Those were not my own convictions necessarily, but they were theirs. And that was okay Mm. for me for in order to make a difference there. But, Mm. um, so definitely I've lived in much more challenging patriarchal environments at times than Venezuela was, but some people would describe, uh, Venezuelan culture as more of a, um, kind of a a matriarchy of sorts in a way. And there's certain parts of the culture that are that way, but still a male dominated patriarch, a matriarchy. Mm. So it's just, it's complicated. Did I get, um, even when I was young in Costa Rica, I remember I was in fourth grade there and I walked to school and I remember construction workers whistling at me. And I was very young, like too young for that to happen. And I just felt like sexual harassment at a young age. So I definitely experienced that. And it was, it made me afraid, mm. um, as a little girl. So I definitely experienced those kinds of things. Um, and then I would say, you know, growing up in Venezuela, we had situations where at the time legally you couldn't, um, go have a surgery as a woman in order to prevent yourself from having children, you know, unless you had um, your husband's signature, but often it was the mother-in-law that also really needed to agree, which is why there's this matriarchy kind of right. thing. Um, so there were some complicated parts of it. There's also, I ended up, one of my undergraduate majors for my bachelor degree, when I did a sociology bachelor's, but I also did a a Spanish um, bachelor's at the same time. And I took um, Latin American cultural classes. I took Spanish civilization. So um, learning that in the U.S. about Latin America through kind of the the sociology of it, you know, we studied a lot about this concept, Mm -hmm. the concept of Marianismo, which is there's machismo, which is like kind of the male dominated type Mm -hmm. part of it. But then there's the Marianismo, which identifies a lot with Mother Mary and how she suffered to watch Jesus die. Yeah. And there's a part of the culture that's where it's like there's a there's like a suffering element of what it means to be a woman. So there was oh. a lot of that uh, in the culture, I would say. However, all of that to say, I grew up with very strong women. Uh, in my church, women <laughs> preached. Women were the right. better preachers. They were the strong leaders to this Ooh. day. It's like that. Ooh. So in the U.S., under kind of a white male power yeah. patriarchy, it has a very different tone where you have probably less women preaching, less women teaching. And um, and so that's been a real mind shift for me to get used to is like, wait, but I thought women were strong leaders. Supposedly, Latin America is where there's machismo. But the white, there's nothing like white male power. <laughs> I just will say like, it's its own thing. So yeah, it's complicated. It's very complicated. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. See, you have got a very, very clinical approach, a very analytical approach, as far as your, your, your points are that you're making, uh, as far as they come across. Um, what I wonder is what the emotional side of that was, because a woman still loves to be a woman of Christ. Let's start earlier. A child wants to be nourished and appreciated and, and feel safe and be, be able to be a child. And then as a teenager, you, you're spreading your wings and, and you are insecure in your own skin and things grow and you know, you have no idea what's going on. Um, right. So, you know, how did that 
let me rephrase that often enough there is certainty because you belong to a culture and you know more or less what the rules of that culture are if you are now transplanted uh, into different cultures where all these things might have very different meanings and a certain look might be normally in one country and another look and the same look in a different country might be an insult you know all that stuff how did you deal with that emotionally yeah, this is an interesting question because I, even though I'm a woman, a lot of the stereotypes around women are that we're emotional. I'm not a typically very emotional person. I'm very kind of level, you know, even keeled about things. However, I would say I'm a passionate person. I'm a very purpose-driven and mission-driven person. Um, and I have strong convictions around things. So I think that probably growing up around these different worlds, um, even in my own international school, having multiple worlds within my school and in my peer group and my friends right um so i my identity is not so much from a place because that wasn't really possible although i do very much identify with growing up in venezuela and that does feel like home to me in a lot of ways but i can't even go back there now because of the situation so that does make it hard but i would say you know emotionally what it did for me probably is it helped me learn uh the value of when you're trying to when you see injustices which i do care very deeply about whether it's, you know, sexism or racism, which we're all a little bit sexist and a little bit racist, myself included. So I, I have my own work to do that I'm constantly working on, you know. Um, but at the same time, I think that rate, being raised like that really helped me understand the value of you will be listened to and you will be able to help make a difference and make change if you can be somewhat logical about and be analytical about it. So that would say that was the gift of my international school experience. I had mm. amazing teachers that really taught me the value of that and helped mm. give me a really good education. Also relativizing my own thoughts and my own feelings and my own experiences alongside my international school classmates mm. who were from New Zealand and Australia and Europe and all around Latin America, you know, a lot of Brazilian friends, Argentine friends, and so because our experiences are all so different and our perspectives are so different, it was a natural environment to kind of throw out my ideas and my perspective and have it challenged. And so mm. I would say that helped me become a challenger as well. So I would say I very much identify with somebody who wants to be a change maker and a challenger, um, but to do it in ways that help us all get better. So nice. that was the emotional side of it for me was like mm. challenging that drive the the ways I felt about injustices the way I mm. still feel about them mm. even when the Berlin Wall was coming down right I was in high school and all that was going on and processing that with my international school classmates and like um, hearing people's different perspectives around the world about that was really was really helpful mm, I can see that it is uh that is I think that is the strength of us cosmopolitan people we are getting our prejudices very quickly cut into pieces, chainsawed, um, because, <laughs> you know, it is, uh, it is, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Because there is so many uh, cliches and crap that is subconsciously laid down in childhood or through films, what you watch, there's certain things that are, that you take for granted when, if you don't think about it. And if you suddenly, if, put yourself into a different environment where people might think very differently about it and speak out, you suddenly realize, whoa, was I on the wrong path? And I actually find that that humility incredibly refreshing. 
I love it when my own prejudices get get it get literally shredded. Um, yeah. And I hate it when my prejudices get reinforced. I must mm. say, I must say. It is, uh, oh, there are so many examples, but here in New Zealand, for example, there is um, racism. We are a bicultural society and the, the biculturalism, i.e. Maori and Pakeha, so white people, um, are, that is that is celebrated. And that's, you know, we are, that's what we're talking about. I always said, well, hang on. We have got so many Asians which have come to New Zealand are living here. What about the multicultural person? Oh, no, no, it's bicultural. Yet, if I think back of the truly racist things I've witnessed, either as a doctor or as other people, it was actually mainly instigated by Maori towards Asians or Maori towards towards thing. So here you are, and it, you just think, what the hell? The people who are really struggling with prejudice um, are doing the same thing. So it's it's crazy. It's a crazy world, and it's really really hard. So for me to actually even speak that out on a show public, I might draw some rather some 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 not so nice comments on that. Yet it is the truth. But some of my Maori friends will say, "How dare you say that? We are not racist. We are." So it's interesting. Did you experience that? That with you growing up like that, that you are more honest. How do you deal with honest insights that very much in your heart? You can actually prove, and you could even prove with data. Yet people say, no, that's not true. Well, who are you to say that? Do you get something like that? Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, as you were saying that, what I, what came to mind is um, the the concept of scarcity mentality, right? Which is a, it's something that the dominant culture will often use as a narrative toward the minority cultures, wherever that is in the world, right? Um and in a way to help them feel as though there's only a few seats left. If we're using the table analogy, which is one I like to use, right? A metaphor about the table. So if there's only one seat at the table for people who aren't like all the other people in power, right? The people in power are typically the majority people mm-hmm. in the US that would be white males, you know, in other places it might be, you know, different demographic, but that's what it is, for example, here. And so maybe we say there's one seat at the table for a black woman, you know? And so then then what you're going to have is like, that's going to pit black women against black women, or it's going to pit Latina women against black women, or it's going to pit an Asian American. You know what I mean? So there's only one seat for that diversity, quote unquote, location. And so that's where I see even here in Silicon Valley, sometimes some situations like what you're saying, where um, also it's like, we've had to fight so hard as a minority culture to get any sort of power. Mm. And so I'm not, I'm not going to let somebody else who's also a minority come in and take that from me. So uh. it's like, it's unhelpful when we have a scarcity mentality. Uh. One of the things I loved about, um, I did the Stephen Covey, um, seven habits of highly uh. effective people training back when I was in, in Indonesia, when I was early on in my professional career, um, in Jakarta. Mm. And I, um, one of the things I love about that is his whole concept that there's always room for more like scarcity mentality is so unhelpful. You, mm. If you just see that there's one pie and there's certain pieces of pie that only go to everyone and then it's limited, mm. basically you're not going to lead very well. But if we see there's, there's just more than we could imagine, there's an abundance mentality, mm. then we, we approach it differently. Like if the table could always be expanded and if there's an endless amount mm. of seats that could be brought in, 
we don't have to worry about that one seat. And it helps. Um, I, I think if you're a part of the dominant culture, that's a helpful thing for us to be able to change. I've not been in the dominant culture most of my life because I've been a minority in places where I've lived. Doesn't mean I haven't had white privilege. I always have wherever I've been. Mm. In Asia, I could walk into any hotel and they always assumed I had a room there, even if I didn't, right? Because I'm I'm white, obviously. <laughs> I, uh, I just, uh, uh. But um, you're right, even if I'm the only white person in the whole town. And so yeah. there's definitely always been a privilege with that. But at the same time, um, and in addition to that, I would say, we often excuse our own people that look like us and we often overlook their indiscretions or their misbehaviors because, mm. and we do that for ourselves. That's human psychology. Like we are more likely to say, oh, the reason I was late was blah, blah, blah. Or the reason I said that was because I was having a bad day, but we're less likely to excuse somebody who's not like us for doing that. We're, we're quick to say, well, you're going to be written up because you're late. I don't care what your excuse is or you're, you shouldn't have spoken that way. I don't care how stressed you are. And so we do that to individuals, um, but we also do it to, with our own group versus another group. And so I definitely saw that growing up and I definitely see it now. And I definitely also do it myself. So maybe I should make some amends as well. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and that's, that's what I mean. That's the authenticity. And that's the, the insights that we need to develop because none of us are perfect. And um and yes, I'm I'm guilty as charged there as well. White face and male. Um, you know how bad can it get in nowadays culture? Um, so I should just be whipping myself bloody for being white and being male. So yeah, I know, I know. We there are certain things there. Having said that, that's not where I should want to go. I think we are both are here to make this world a better place. And in order to do so, we need to recognize that some of the beliefs that we that we harbor and that that are driving our actions are maybe not so sensible anymore. And I think that is that is really so important. And I'm fast forwarding with you now, Silicon Valley, California. Uh, I mean, down there, what is the reality? You were saying white and male, these are the power positions. Is there is there actually any true white male still around? Is that not such a melting pot <laughs> down there? I mean, if you were to do DNA <laughs> testing, is there, there must be some Mexican in virtually everyone down there. And well, not Mexican or South American, any kind of, of mixed race. This must be the standard, is it not? This is an excellent question. Yeah, I, I definitely think that we live in some of the most diverse parts of the US yeah. here in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley in particular, yeah. which is why I wanted to live here of all places in the US because as third culture kids, all five of us in our family, we probably couldn't survive in Idaho or somewhere like that. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's much cheaper. So there are advantages of moving there. But um, yes, it is definitely, um, I mean, you know, some people say we're really headed more toward a post-racial society. A racial race is a social construct anyway, mm. um, which you know is largely very helpful in the slavery years of um, you know bringing African slaves against their will, enslaved peoples brought to plantations or forced labor camps in the United States, and so whiteness uh, became a thing in order to other the others. Um, you know, and at the time um, there was a lot of the you know philosophy around how black bodies weren't human bodies at the time. I mean, we think that's a horrible thing today. It is, but at the time, it was a very normal, apparently, thought process, especially in the southern part of the U.S., where a lot of the cotton fields and um, forced labor camps were. Mm -hmm. However, 
Um, we do still have um, quite a few what people would perceive that project as white males, even here in the Silicon Valley. And a lot of the powerful positions, either CEOs are largely in that category, even of the tech companies, you know, you've got the Mark Zuckerberg and the, you know, people like that. And so definitely people who present as white males and would identify that way. Um, however, um, there is so much uh, immigration here. Our H-1B visas have brought in a lot of people from South Asia in particular to work in tech. Um, so people, you know, people of two different races, marrying one another and having children, that's very, very common, whereas a generation ago was not as common. So, mm. but if you look demographically around the U.S., the people that are still in positions of power in D.C., the people who are CEOs, the people who own, you know, a lot of the money, mm. you know, industries, you know, whatever that are money producing, typically tend to be white males. So it's still definitely a privilege that people hold. I'm married to a white male. I'm raising two white males. So we, it's a regular conversation in our household um, that when you are given that kind of privilege, it's not so that you lord it over others. That's not how it was intended to be. Mm. But you didn't, you didn't ask to be born a white male. That's not a choice you made. <laughs> but because you've been, yeah, you've been given that privilege. It's not to feel guilty. It's not mm. to feel bad about yourself. You have nothing to be ashamed of. It is a privilege that comes with great responsibility. So you are at a table you did not ask to be sat at and you get to invite people. So that is the privilege is that you get to use your privilege for good. So knowing the pipeline was was met with you in mind, that when you apply for a job, you're most likely to get an interview and think you deserve to be there. Um, you are going to be perceived by the police as probably up to good things, whereas your black guy friends are going to be perceived as being a criminal from the outside. I mean, that's just, you didn't know, ask for it. I know. Yeah. You no, know, you did not ask for that. And it's not to feel guilty, but I've raised my voice to say, how can you help? How can you use this, this thing that you've been given um, to help others? And so that's the thing, right? It's, it's, uh, it's just the way the world works, you know? So they, uh, they're good boys. They are not perfect. <laughs> they're being raised now in the U.S. where they're a majority and white privilege is a whole different ballgame here for right. them than it was living in Asia. But um, yeah, I, I actually think I have a lot of hope in the white males that I know. I know some incredible ones that are really using their platforms for good. I know yeah. I have a good Australian friend speaking. I know Kiwis and Australians, they, they have a whole rivalry, but I have, a, <laughs> I have a friend who's in Sydney, just moved to Perth. And he will not be on a panel that has all men. So even though he's an academic and has written multiple books and has been, you know, high levels of universities, he will not be on what is called a manal where they don't let women be there because he's raising three strong daughters. And he Ooh. realizes it's an economic disadvantage for him to do this. But he's like, I have to use my power and my privilege to help. If nobody's going to change it, my daughters are going to inherit a world where they don't get those seats and they deserve to be there. So I think that that's the wow. example that I'm talking about is like, he's not feeling guilty about being a white man, but yeah. he's using it for good. So yeah, shout out to Dr. Graham Hill in Perth, by the way. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, wow. Uh, Graham, I take my hat off. Um, that is a powerful stance you're making there. Um, that is, and that is, that is what this is all about. Living your life fully means you accept responsibility for what you're doing. So for you to show up uh, regularly to whatever you say you would show up means integrity. 
Integrity is defined as what you're doing when no one is watching. So it is those kind of things. And if you start living by a certain code of honor, where integrity, self-love and humility actually mean something, that is when you are really stepping in a leadership role. Now, you can have two X chromosomes, you can have an XY, you can have an XYY, I don't care what kind of configurations you have. Um, but it, the principles are still the same. And that's what makes a good leader. And we are talking the difference here now between XY and XX. But in reality, that is uh, the same is uh, holds true for skin color, the same holds true for different, different uh, make-believe friends such as God or Allah or whatever whatever uh, your make-believe friend is uh, you believe in. Um, it is, these are all things. So let's talk about leadership because I think that is your 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 thing. You're going out there, you're demonstrating, um, you're demonstrating these virtues, these, these abilities, and that makes you who you are. It is... Uh, I mean, we are, maybe let's go a moment back because I know reading about you, I know that you had some some amazing challenges in your own life that further changed you and threw you around. Because here you were going back now about 20 years, um, still young marriage and babies coming along and yay. And I, I, I knew she wanted to come to New Zealand. Yes, she had really good taste. <laughs> Laurie, yeah. well done. I commend you on that. But then something <laughs> happened. That was in 2004. In January, I believe you were you were planning to, but then uh, things started happening, especially you know, around Christmas. Tell us a bit that side of your story. Yeah. So, um, yes, January 2004, we gave birth to our first child. And when he was just uh, a month shy of turning one, um, we had planned on a month later after he turned one to visit New Zealand. But something happened on December 26th that year, which was the Asian tsunami that hit Banda Aceh, Indonesia. And that was the area where my husband and I had been doing international relief and development work. And so our lives changed in a moment um, in ways that um, were paled in comparison to the ways that the lives of my dear friends changed. Where some of my friends lost their baby. Um, I met people who later on um, survived on palm trees or in the one car load from their village that made it out, you know, the 10% of their village. And people who survived on mattresses, just incredible stories of survival. Um, some people that we had known prior to the tsunami, many of them survived, not all of them, unfortunately. Um, but then even people in the work that we did that we met that had miraculous stories of survival. And for the next five years, um, we, both my husband and I were involved in different parts of the international relief and development. Started off with a lot of disaster relief. And then ended up being just kind of community development, rebuilding houses and, mm. um, you know, helping people have clean water and agriculture brought in, you know, we had teams of people we were supervising and projects we were involved in. But the initial couple of months with a lot of death everywhere, a lot of dead bodies everywhere, even a month later was still common to see dead bodies around just because it took a while to, to kind of 
find all of them under the rubble. So, um, and then I kind of started and supervised some medical clinics with some volunteers from the U.S. that came in. Uh, I was a liaison with the U.N. as they came in because I had been living there before and very few expats had any experience living in this very isolated province under Sharia law and what that meant. So it was a lot of um, cultural information. Mm. You know, it should have been obvious to not send pork and beans to a Muslim country, but there were donations of that. It's You'd be surprised <laughs> what people will send. Oh, God. Like, what in the world are you? Yes. <laughs> like, thank you, but I don't know what we're going to do with this. So, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we needed a lot of cultural help. And so that, yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, I mean, it's one thing if you're going there yourself as a young person in a missionary or either religious missionary or other um, uh, non-government organization role, um, whatever happens, you deal with it. But here you were with a young child. How did that go? Because, I mean, this is your own lives were essentially threatened it was there was uncertainty and and where's the food coming from is the water that i i give my child will it will it kill it uh or you know how how did that go for you how i mean you're, yeah. you're talking so so calm about that but for crying out loud okay even if you're a non-emotional person sorry if suddenly <laughs> you know the dead are literally swarming around you come on come on yeah no it was I remember my husband and I having a, a very serious conversation like once we realized what had happened it was like um we are strong people of faith both of us raised in families of faith and um at that point he looked at me and said if God doesn't do something really big out of this, I don't know if my faith can handle it. This is so hard, you know? Incidentally, looking back, um, we were very, I would say, privileged to be at a place where there was such death and destruction and horrible, unimaginable things. But I don't understand all the reasons those things happen. I, I don't have answers for it. Climate change is horrible. The, the world is shaken up. It, you know, I don't have any... Um, I'm not one of those people that said that these were evil people and therefore God destroyed them. I don't believe in a God like that. That's not the God that I worship. And, you know, I believe God is love and God is um, comforting and nurturing and, and like a mother hen gathering her chicks is the way I experience God. Hmm. So that for me, I would say it was a privilege to be there um, and help and serve people who were in such absolute pain and misery and you don't do work like that without giving your own soul to it as well like there's just no way to make a difference like that without also suffering alongside I didn't suffer alongside in the same ways that so many of my friends did like one of my best Achenese friends lost her baby and it was it was just horrible to this day I think of her every year on December 26 and wonder what she would have been like if she had survived and so it's hard that it's still hard every year I cry a little bit sometimes a lot. It's, I don't understand. And it's been 17 years, you know, so it was hard. Um, I did, we were privileged to have a house outside of the zone to keep our child in. And until um, we moved in a few months later, it was hard to find housing in that area, to be honest, um, it because be it was so much was destroyed. Exactly. Yeah. 
And then, you know, when all these NGOs came in, UN and all these big CRS and different ones, the housing prices went way up. Um, so it had been a very cheap place to have a, a, a home, but then it became unaffordable even for the local people. So that's kind of the dark side of some of the help that doesn't help um, when helping hurts. I would describe it that way sometimes. But at the same time, uh, I did have a wonderful woman. I will shout out to, I don't know if she listens to podcasts. I don't think she does, but Ibu Puspa is her name. And she was uh, a nanny that we had hired to take care of our son. And she was like, literally like mother Mary in so many ways, she was just a wonderful woman. And to this day, I owe her so much that I was able to do work because she cared for our son. Mm. And um, really just feels like a part of our family even now, but I was able to like kind of pump some breast milk, leave our child at times and go into the tsunami zone. You know, there was one moment where we did bring our son into a village that had lost all of the women and children for the most part, because the only people that survived in that particular village were the fishermen who were out to sea on boats. So they experienced this tsunami as just a little ripple in the water way out past the wave. And they came back to shore and everybody was gone. Um, so that was a very difficult village that we did a lot of work in, wow. provided tents for and a lot of food and helped rebuild. But when it, we brought our son for the first time, this little chubby white baby, um, they passed him around. All the men passed him around. They said, leave him with us and he can be the leader of our village one day. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that would have been a whole turn of events. But they just were so happy to see a child. They had lost all, you know, it was just really, really hard. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of work had its fun moments, had its joyful moments, but for the most part, it was the most gut-wrenching thing I've ever gone through alongside people. Wow. Wow. That changes you. There's no two ways around that. But, um, may I ask, what did your own faith, how did your own faith journey there go with, with such challenges? Yeah, I would say um, it was hard. It was hard watching some situations that I would describe as pretty spiritually abusive of my friends. And that was hard to watch. There were a lot of unhelpful things that were said to survivors, such as my one of my best Achenese friends was told, well, why did you live near the beach? And it was like, well, I mean, of course she lived near the beach. It's beautiful. Um, you know, why didn't, why couldn't you hold on to your baby? Well, the reality is no one can hold on to their baby. Her husband was very strong and he held on for as long as he could. They climbed to the top of the middle school and a woman was pulling on his arm the whole time, trying to survive herself, the human instinct that you have to just survive. And then the last they saw their baby, she was floating out to sea saying, you know, daddy, daddy, and the local language. And, um, and then her friends were telling her, well, why are you crying? If you cry, you will trap your baby's spirit in like this purgatory type space. So she had a hard time processing her trauma. Uh, and I translated for a trauma counselor who came from uh, Bislan, Russia. Um, and he translated, he was English speaker from the US. And he came, had a specialty in trauma with children. But he, he coached or um, counseled my friend. And basically, she just, it, she wouldn't cry. She's like, if I cry, I'm trapping my baby's soul. Her husband, on the other hand, was a complete wreck. And he was crying all the time. He's like, I don't care what the religion says. I, I, I can't not cry. He was just, he was a complete wreck. But I felt like he was probably healthier because he was processing it. The body was intended to cry. So that part was really hard for me to watch, really hard. Um, and, you know, we all have our faith backgrounds and our differences um, but I think at the end of the day, it was our humanity that drew me close to my friends. 
um, even though we might disagree on different scriptures and who's a prophet and who's not, and, and, you know, all these different ways to get to heaven, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, it was our humanity and the experience of death and dying and the experience of trauma and all those things that no matter what your faith, or maybe if you were, had no faith at all, that that was a common experience that we all shared. And so I would say I came out of that with a deeper appreciation for how God did make us, how God made our bodies to process hard things, um, and how when we come together, part of the way we heal in trauma is to tell our stories. So for me, speaking six languages, I try to use that as a way to help people tell their stories, because I know the value for me and in traumas that I've gone through and the way that I've healed is through people. People hurt us, people help us heal. And so that's one of the greatest lessons I learned. That is a very spiritual lesson for me in the tsunami is just giving a listening ear and saying, you know, we can be healers. You know, you could go and get a doctor's, you know, degree or whatever. You could go and be a psychologist, mm -hmm. but everybody can be a part of helping people heal. If you'll just listen and believe survivors, like it's the most simple thing. Wow. Was this development this transformation in yourself did you also notice that in other uh helpers and um was that something maybe unique to you with your christian upbringing so for example i assume that the red crescent was there um mm -hmm. and that there were a lot of islamic uh relief organizations um came in did you guys bond did you work together or was it more groups in dealing with certain villages this group just by necessity was more in a different village and therefore little crossover how did that happen how did that go yeah it was a little bit of both yeah i definitely worked we had the red crescent from multiple places you know kuwait and turkey all these yeah. different locations um and then you know you've got catholic relief services yeah. you've got smaller organizations i was with a grassroots organization in indonesia that i mostly worked with yeah. and so yeah we all worked together obviously the un was coordinating all of us and so we would cooperate where we could i mean mostly in the beginning it was logistics like we've got a lot of antibiotics so hmm. we don't need another truckload of antibiotics to sure. go up so who's gonna who's gonna do what where and so we we worked together yeah. like you've got tents i've got this so yeah. we definitely had to coordinate in order it was massive right it was the largest disaster of our generation Absolutely. at this point and so exactly. it, it did need the un to come in and coordinate so yeah i worked with everyone and got to know a lot of great people doing a lot of great work i think in an environment like that yeah. um it, you do get to see how people work differently but disaster relief if you've ever been a part of it it's exhausting work it's most yeah. organizations in disaster relief do like a two weeks on And then they take a break because right. it's just really too, especially with a lot of death early on, it's very hard to do much more. Mm. So you have a lot of turnover of people mm. you're working with, like so-and-so is out this week. So you're constantly dealing with new people. So you don't get to go huh. really super deep. You're really, especially disaster relief, you're just working really hard. And there were still earthquakes going on during that time. We had a lot of power outage situations. And so- um i wouldn't say early on i really had a lot of soul conversations with other workers necessarily yeah um which can be really challenging because we really need that and um so part of the role um in good disaster relief organizations is to have wellness aspects of it like when they're taking breaks Absolutely. 
also debriefing. We did a lot of debriefing among our own team, you know, nice. um, how are you doing today? Making sure we're still laughing. You know, it's, it can be hard to find something to laugh at mm. when you've been doing a lot of body removal during the day and um, seeing really difficult wounds, um, hearing stories of people who lost all their children. There was one woman who a uh, hundred days after the tsunami, which was a big marker that there was a lot of commemoration around and mourning process in the local culture. And she was someone we took to a clinic and picked her up at the village. And she had some like her, something going on with her eye. And um, she basically was a mother of, I want to say like eight or nine children. And she lost every single one. The only living family member she had left was her brother. And as she got in the car with us, the only word she said, she was very catatonic, even a hundred days later, the only word she said was takut, which is the Indonesian word for scared, but nothing about her body showed fear. She was just a complete wall, but she said that word. And I just could tell that her body was really keeping the score. And so we took her to the clinic. There was a specialist there from the U S at the time who was an ophthalmologist, I believe. Mm. And when he kind of got into her eye she had like six splinters in there for a hundred days and she didn't even feel it it was just like she was numb because the pain of losing her children was the greatest pain of her whole being um but yeah it's so it was it was really overwhelming it was hard to find anything to laugh about on that particular day in the debrief because you just saw so much but it was so important for us to find any joy or hope um and to, to keep going, you know, so we really had to be that for one another. And, um, and so, yeah, there was a little bit of that element among other organizations, but I would say our organization, um, most of us were of a faith background, a Christian background. And so we definitely had that in common, like finding where is God in this, you know, where are the good aspects of God nurturing us and drawing us in, in this situation. And that's, that's what gave me hope to keep going is there, there was a greater purpose behind it for sure for me. I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing to help others, but it can leave a huge strain on you. And especially if you then suddenly find yourself having worked straight through for sometimes days, and then something happens where there's a perceived injustice, that is that is where I find it hardest. Um, and automatically then something in me pipes up and said here i am giving everything and then some and now you are saying that or you are treating me like that etc that is that is sort of the hardest for me to deal with um did you experience similar situations how do you how did you how do you deal with criticism when you actually put yourself so much out there, you try to be a, such a positive woman, you try to be out there and change this world. Inevitably, this will invite bullies, this in will, will invite people who just are dumbasses, but the, their words still hurt. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say I relate to what you're saying. The more you're hungry, angry, tired, you know, there's this list of things that you shouldn't do uh, 
confrontation with someone when you're any of those things and when you're doing disaster relief that's basically every day exactly that point yeah right exactly um and then for me personally my firstborn child was not a sleeper he didn't really sleep through the night until he was two years old so not only were we having earthquakes and power outages and you know like it was just like a perfect storm so i would not say i was my best self during those days it was more of a zombie most of the time but um, at the same time, I would say for me personally, and this is my personality, like I probably was um, more likely to react like that. And I can think of some a couple of times where I felt a lot of anger toward people, uh, mostly Westerners who would come in as volunteers who might be there either from another part of Indonesia coming in to just help for like two weeks and then go back to wherever they worked Mm. or ones that came maybe from the U S or different places. Um, because for me, it's like, I've dedicated my life to going deep in this culture, Mm. learning the language, learning the culture, dressing like them, trying my very best to be here for the long term. And here you are for two weeks and you have all this advice for how we should be doing things. Are you freaking kidding me? Like, I mean, sometimes it would be like that or it'd be like, well, why haven't you sent out a newsletter? All these people that have been like donating and supporting the work, like want to know all the details. It's like, I don't have electricity. Mm. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I would, I would find myself thinking like, yeah, that's amazing if that could be <laughs> the reality, but we exactly. are kind of in a disaster here. And I know you're you're leaving after two weeks and we've been here like four months doing this nonstop kind of thing, you know? So yeah, you I would say I was my best self. <laughs> right. oh, no, it's just, uh, it's like, I would have probably strangled that person. <laughs> I know, yeah. who are you? Yeah, so uh, I get it. I'm a kind of person that also wants to maximize and help things get better. It's also yeah. a strength I have. So honestly, those experiences help me understand how I might come across to someone else. You just don't know what people are dealing with. And so I would say that's my takeaway from that is like, okay, clearly we are in different worlds right now. I came into this conversation very different than you just did. And so I'm going to hope that you would not have said this if you had had any understanding of what I've been going through. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. If this, if if your words truly reflect your emotions at that time, then I'm in absolute awe of you. Um, because <laughs> truly there is still quite a hothead living in there. And sometimes I have, uh, I need to have both hands on the lid to put a lid down on this guy because otherwise he would quite happily rip your head off and do <laughs> do, do things with it. So no, no, no. Um, so you're a better woman than I'm. Well, you're a better human, yeah. shall I say? I'm not a woman. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, okay. But no, it's, it's wonderful. And that is, uh, it speaks for you. But then again, as with every good habit and good virtue, it takes practice. And I think this insightful way of living that you demonstrate here, I mean, that comes full circle from you actually being out there in other cultures for actually seeing the reality and seeing discrepancies, seeing inequalities um, around the world. And you are sensitized in a good way for it. And maybe therefore you're a bit more, a bit better prepared, shall I say, um, to to deal with with people who are who are, who are acting the way you described. Well, I mean, about a story, and you stayed there five years. 
10 years total in Indonesia. The first five was the civil war that was going on in the area. So, um, and then the last yeah. five was the disaster relief and community development phase. Mm -hmm. Which is a very good point. Banda Arce um, had a trouble with the, with the civil war just prior to that. How did that actually then continue? How did, yeah, did, so, did the opposing fronts, did the, I think it was an Islamic insurgency pretty much, isn't it? That that was going on prior to there. Is that not what I understand right? Somewhat, yeah. It's um, It was one of the longest running civil wars in the world, actually. So when the Dutch colonized Indonesia, they never fully conquered Aceh province. It was yeah. the one part of Indonesia they never really fully yeah. colonized. Yeah. So they were always fighting. And then when then Indonesia became its own nation, they um, basically were at war. The Jakarta government was at war with the Achenese province the entire time. So it was about 35 years, I think, the war was going on. Right. And they did sign a peace agreement about six months after the tsunami. So one of the gifts of all those NGOs coming in in the UN was that it was a place not a lot of foreigners had really ever been. And so... Uh -huh. In fact, foreigners had been banned from being in the province for about 18 months before the tsunami. So wow. the work, we had been kicked out as well. So we were living on the border of Aceh province in Maidan. Um, and the UN couldn't even get in for the first three days until they switched. And uh, so my husband was actually one of the first foreigners up into the tsunami zone. Wow. And so, um, yeah, but they basically, they had all these NGOs in there. And so they realized this war was still going on and they um, signed a peace agreement in Switzerland about six months after the tsunami, which was a relief. It's still complicated, but that was definitely a big change. Wow. And again, I mean, that is then then talk about insightfulness and talk about changing lives. How much a person who up until the 26th of December would have been their whole focus, would have been their hatred and their fight for justice. And regardless on which side you are, you're always fighting for justice for yourself and, and your group. And suddenly how that all pales into nothing compared when you actually see true tragedy but isn't it sad that we have to wait for true tragedy to occur to do something like that? Do we need an earthquake in the Ukraine to actually to 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 make people see see the the craziness of it all? Yeah, it's heartbreaking, obviously, for all of us. What's going on in the Ukraine? I will say that, unfortunately, um, early on. And, you know, I have the perspective, mostly of the Achenese people that I lived among for five years. Um, the Indonesian government, the military was doing a lot of atrocities. So you'll see after Suharto was kicked out, um, Amnesty International uncovered a lot of mass graves in Aceh province. So there was a lot of torture of the Achenese people. A lot of my friends had been kidnapped either by the military or by the rebels at different points because nobody knew who was a spy for who. <laughs> I have a friend that lived in Java at the time. Um, and he had a collection of Achenese ears. Um, it was just horrible, the things that were done there. And so after the tsunami hit, um, unfortunately, the Indonesian military had been trained, this is the enemy, and that they didn't really switch that mindset right away. And so um, they, there was lots of stories of Indonesian military stealing from the bodies, stealing their gold rings and things like that. And the U.S. military was in early on helping with like, water and food and airdrops they were some of the first to leave one of the first militaries to leave because the rumor was in the in the development world <laughs> that there was an there was an Indonesian military officer um stealing 
from a body or stealing food, I think it was for the relief. And um, a US military guy either punched him or they got in a fight. And the US ended up saying, we need to pull out before this is a bad scene politically. And uh, because they were, the Indonesian military, I don't, I can't speak for everyone, but so many of them were trained to still see this as the enemy and be able to do things that would allow them to, to get to the degree of collecting Achenese ears. Like, I mean, there's just, it's just a very nefarious type of warfare that was going on. And so, yeah, when I, when I think about Ukraine, I don't know that a situation firsthand in terms of Russia and the way they operate and Putin and all those things. But um, when you've been trained that this is the enemy, even if there was an earthquake in Ukraine, I would imagine it might still be very difficult. You know what I'm saying? Very yeah. much so. And with that, you raise also the issue of intergenerational or, or conflicts that are going on for a long period of time. There is this, this fantasy that the Second World War ended on the 8th of May, 1945, which is absolute bullshit. Um, yes, uh, Germany capitulated and, and signed a nice little piece of paper at that time, but the, the world war continued for at least another five years in the various countries, and certainly yeah. Ukraine and, and Poland and Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and some of the countries dotted around there. There were massive, massive civil wars and, and wars continuing where um villages were slaughtered and women raped and it was just yeah tomorrow we're gonna come to the ukrainian ukrainian came to the other country and so on it's so when there were so many things done <sighs> awful things done and yeah. now then finally peace has settled uh, and peace has come and now war comes again so now you will still have that simmering, simmering memory there from what has occurred prior to this war, or even if there was a disaster now that where one would hope everyone comes together. No, because you still got that memory, that collective memory, what happened to mother, grandmother, um, whatever it is in the family, which makes it so hard. So how the hell can we improve our world? Is it not, I mean, here you are, you and I are sitting um, and talking about him changing the world. And then you look at, at such a monumental task. How the hell can we, we two even dare to dream? How could we change the world? What is your take on that? Should we not be powerless? And should we not say, oh, for fuck's sake, we are not even politicians. Who are we to even dream about changing this world? Yeah, I mean, I I think that we all look at whatever power and influence we have. And I think that power works best when it's redeemed in a way that we give it away and we share it. And one of the ways we can do that best is by listening to one another. Um, there is just really no substitute for deep listening to one another's perspectives, which is why I love podcasting so much because it gives <laughs> us a chance to do that, right? And it gives us a chance to show the world because podcasts, go all around the world, you yeah. know, and it gives True. us a chance to both True. model that conversation and how to deeply listen to one another. It, it allows us to come around the table with our differences and 
I love listening to people who have very different perspectives from me because I, I learned in my sociology undergrad, my bachelor's degree, this whole concept in social theory of having these glasses that you are put on, mm. they put them on you when you're born, right? Mm. And it's the, the culture that you're being raised in. And mm. so those glasses are where you see the world through your whole life. And especially if you stay in the same culture your whole life, you're going to pretty much always wear those glasses. Mm. One of the privileges of my life is I've had multiple sets of glasses put on me over time. Exactly. And so... Uh, but I still don't see everything in a very holistic way because I'm still limited by the cultures I've been a part of, by the way I've lived in those cultures. I'm, I, I live in the body of a woman, so I've only had the female perspective, you know, personally firsthand. Mm -hmm. So learning other languages is really helpful. I've learned other people's perspectives by learning their language because you don't just learn a language when you learn language, mm -hmm. you learn culture. So that's True. one thing you can do. But I would say the best way to learn a language is by deep listening anyway. So it still mm -hmm. comes back to listening for me, because when you listen to people's stories, you see the differences, but you also see the common humanity. And that's mm -hmm. the beauty of it all is it, it creates empathy. And I'm not naturally an empathetic person. And so it helps me to create empathy when I hear mm -hmm. other stories, other narratives, other people's experiences. And I think that's where we start. We don't have to start big. I mean, yes, mm -hmm. we should vote wherever we live. We should run for office if that's something we can do. Mm -hmm. We should change systems. If you're a person who can build a table that's inclusive from the beginning, most tables were built with the majority race and gender in mind, mm -hmm. wherever you are. So a lot of tables were not made, for example, for me as a woman. And so when I try to sit there, I feel lonely. I feel like I don't belong. And so building tables that are inclusive from the beginning or just recreating those tables in a way that's inclusive is a very important part of it all. We don't want to hand our kids and our grandkids this kind of world. We want to do better for them. And each generation, that's the task that we have is to listen well, learn from one another. This whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging is, is not just something you hire somebody at a tech company to do to hire mm. people that are tokens in your company. It's something we all should be involved in. <laughs> that tells you a little bit how I feel. Oh, no, absolutely. But, uh, Look, no, yeah. absolutely. But I mean, yeah, at the same token, this, this sounds all quite, quite uh, I 100% agree with everything you said. Um, I have got a lot of South African friends who uh, fled their country really after the ANC and after the, the, the more recent changes in, in laws and, and employment law came in. And many uh, uh, white South Africans have come here who had been running, who had been in this privileged position. And now they were either ousted or booted out of a company by someone uh, with, uh, with a darker skin color or with a black person, because that was what was demanded. You have to have a certain amount of, of, uh, of black color in, in, uh, in any business regardless if this person is able to do the job, regardless if actually the employment of this person might mean the end of a business because simply it will be run into the ground. And I hear again and again such stories. So only just to, to lengthen the table and push people onto it just so that they fit our, our criteria or fit our, our new culture of integration, forced integration. Uh, that doesn't work. I um, mean, that it is, there are a lot of people who would say out there, no, you're talking bullshit, you're dreaming. So what would you tell these people? What would you tell my South African, African friends? 
Yeah, no, this is an excellent point. We, in the U.S., some of that conversation um, started a few decades ago around what they call affirmative action. So you would hear a lot of this similar narrative around that time. Um, I would say, you know, just from my own personal experience, I would never want a company or a business or nonprofit or anybody to hire me just because of my gender. That would be the biggest insult you could possibly give me. I mean, right? Don't just hire me as a token woman. That's just horrible, right? Hire me because I'm good at the job, right? Exactly. That's exactly. what we want. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's really on the people doing the hiring. It's the mm. people making those decisions. Like, so that's who I would speak to the most is to say, if you are in a position of leading an organization, changing those systems, doing the recruiting and the hiring, mm. please, for the love of God, hire qualified people. Mm. But yes, the thing is the best teams are diverse teams. They really mm. are. So when you look at a candidate, don't just look at your good old boy club. Like, I don't mm. want to just hire all white women around me because that's very limiting. Like, it's not a good team. We're not mm. going to solve the biggest challenges in our company, our organization, mm. when everybody has the same perspective. We don't want yes men mm. around us. Like, that's mm. a terrible way to lead. Absolutely. We need people who challenge us, who say, I 100% disagree with you. And then you realize, oh, I was actually wrong. I have a blind spot. We all have them. So the best teams are diverse teams. Absolutely, right. 100%. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean we hire tokens because that actually does more harm than good. Um, I had a situation in a workplace I was in before. They hired this one black man. He was my good friend. He's so smart, so capable, so intelligent, a great leader. They hired him and then limited how he could lead, unfortunately. And so he felt like a token even though he was very qualified, very overqualified for the job. So to get hired, he had to be twice as good as everybody else, which he was. Uh, 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 but then they didn't change uh, the system. They didn't change the system to where he actually got to lead. It was created uh, in a very white culture. So he was constantly having to code switch and act white culture and not and dress like and talk like and act like and be very reserved with his emotions because he, if he ever got angry, oh my gosh, you know, and that kind of thing. So uh, um I would say when you hire diversity, please have the million conversations that need to be had around how to have this go well for everyone, um, because nobody wants to be a token. It doesn't do any good for your company and it doesn't do any good for the person and it doesn't do any real change because then it just makes it look like to every other person behind them that's looking to them to pave the way that it failed. So we need to be very careful around how we do that. And there's a lot of good information if you really research it. Very wisely spoken, very correct spoken. And again, I 100% agree there. Oh, man. Should we all do... Actually, yeah, good question. Should we all do a DNA test um, to actually see what is how we are, what our genetic makeup actually is? Have you done one out of interest? So I've thought about doing it. My parents have both done it and they give me access to theirs, which you know that the nature of these things is the more people that take them, the more it's, you're constantly seeing more kind yeah. of things. So I've played around with it a little bit, but yeah, um, I, I think that it is a good thing on, for, for no other reason than the fact that here in California, we've arrested a lot of people that have gone under the radar for years. Somebody else got arrested for a crime of like some very famous California rapist they found him through DNA. Somebody oh, else, he was actually a policeman. He had gone huh. up and down California, raping all these women and hid in the police force. And they found him through a piece of trash in his trash can through DNA of his cousins that had done the whole DNA test. 
So for, for no other reason alone to help us find the, the people who actually did the crime instead of all these black men yeah. they were arrested for crimes they didn't commit or whatever. Huh. Um, for that, so that's actually very helpful to our society. But also I think that, you know, I've actually had some black friends that have done it and it turns out they're more white than black if you're going to race as a social construct, yeah. but, but still, if but they present as more black. So they've identified as black because that's how their skin looks, but like it's complicated, right? So uh, I think it's uh, fascinating. I think all of it's very fascinating. Indeed, right. And it is it is beautiful. There was, uh, whilst I'm not uh, not touting one company over another, uh, Ancestry just had this very beautiful, beautiful advertisement uh, on the internet where they um, took uh, classic cliches of people. There was the English and the French. There was the, the Palestinian and the Israeli. There were all these opposing groups there. And, and the whole, very 20, 25 people they had there in this group and did interviews. Tell me who you are. I'm English. I'm yes. <laughs> what would be the worst? The worst could possibly come up in your in your DNA. Oh, bloody French. I hate them. I hate the French. And so it was really cliche. And it was maybe it was constructed to be exactly like that but it was beautiful because you had all these interviews to start off with so it was snippets from that and then they did the big reveal where basically everyone got their uh, dna tests and you saw sort of the faces going <laughs> the, of course the, the english guy had some french in it and of course the french woman was oh my god and so on it went but what then came after that there was a lot of laughter a lot of embarrassment a lot of you're kidding me I did not see that coming kind of a thing. And then a a sudden a sudden coming together in this very diverse group. And that was beautiful to see. That put a big smile on my face. And that was I had seen that advertisement and I thought, wow, well done. Good advertisement. And then actually my wife gave me one of these tests uh, for my birthday, just for, for fun. We did it. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, I had some interesting surprises coming up for me there. Not not pure yeah. German. Oh, shit, yeah. Not pure German. No, no. There was this rumor in my family that my grandmother had a fling with an English officer in 1944. Oh. And therefore, I, um, yeah, that was sort of the, the story. Um, and I thought, bullshit. Um, I knew when my mum was born, the 6th of April, 1945. So that would make it somewhere around August 44. No way, no way in Mannheim that there were any in English officers. It was just, no, right. this was a bloody Nazi town. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and then my DNA result came back. Yeah, yeah, 30% English, Irish. And wow. I thought, oh. <laughs> and Maybe it was true. There is, well, and the only way that it could have happened is that she was working actually in the resistance and that she was helping downed airmen uh, probably get out of there. And because they had a, a photo lab, um, a Photoshop, um, so she could have actually helped, been helping uh, get the, the pictures of false identities, etc. So wow, here you way go. to go, Grandma. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so here I stand, corrected, and uh, it it opened so many more questions than anything else. Turns out I'm also 1% Jewish. Who knew? 
somehow that, wow. that snuck in. So it's it's so amazing. So if I was, and, and I'm the opposite, but if I was actually right wing, if I was a man who has strong beliefs into, oh, I'm a good German Aryan, well, no, I'm not. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So whilst by definition, I'm a German skinhead. Um, yeah, I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I hate extremism with, with a passion. And mm. so I think for me, it was actually just, just that little fun thing of doing your DNA was actually a very uh, good eye opener. And I've, I sort of wish that maybe more people would do it. More people who have uh, very strong convictions maybe should do it and should be, mm. should be encouraged to publicize their own DNA or their own findings. Yeah. And actually, therefore, if you have really strong beliefs and you're on your, on your little soapbox and jumping up and down, um, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> maybe go out there, do a DNA test. And see what if maybe your your thing changes because if you can change in your heart if you suddenly can raise doubt about your own prejudices and and beliefs that maybe don't suit you so well in a modern world in a modern society maybe this is where we should start. This is how we can bring people around the table to actually mm -hmm. communicate. What would you say is the most important thing? So what's I, I think maybe this little. DNA test for everyone might not be a bad idea. Um, no, not bad at all. <laughs> so where, what would you recommend? What would you be your, your dream? If you could have the fairy coming to you, the genie coming to you, you have that one wish and you want to make your, your wish and come true. How would you go about it? One wish. That's a hard one. You know, it's always the wish for more wishes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say what my one wish would be. But I would say the advice that I give a lot of people when I do kind of trainings around how to do diversity and inclusion well in different spaces, whether it's through social impact and podcasting, which is one of the you know talks I gave last week at the podcast movement evolutions conference in LA or I was a part of the She Leads conference recently in March for women leading in the church space. Um, and so I would just say one of the pieces of advice I give people is make a list of your friends and try to break it down like in categories of demographics, like look around your society and see the different demographics in your society, like gender, race, even though it's a social construct, mm -hmm. it's still one that we use to identify and, and put people in these boxes, um, maybe socioeconomic status, educational level. Maybe you want to put part of town they live in or whatever works mm. for you, but try to diversify your own friend group because that will expand your worldview and it will help you see even the way that you vote, um, how it affects people in your city differently mm. than you. And it'll affect, um, you know, things that you, the changes that you want to be a part of will often be inspired by people around you. You know, if you have people who are unemployed, maybe you have stereotypes around why that's true, that you think they're lazy or they're taking advantage of the system and they're living on government assistance. Um, I myself had to live on government assistance recently during the pandemic time because of work-related things. And I was trying very hard to get a job for a period of time. And even with my white privilege and master's degree and years of experience, it wasn't working right away. And so yeah. Um, you know, some of the things I thought about assistance really changed from my own personal experience. But if I had actually met people and listened to them a little more in that demographic, I might have already had those perspectives. And so mm -hmm. I would just say, make a friend list, try to fill in the boxes that you that are empty, that are very noticeable, 
And one of the ways to do that is to just go into different spaces and put yourself out there. You don't have to say it perfectly or do it perfectly because if you're a listener, that's really the main thing is just be like, I want to listen and get to know people. So cool. Now that's really, really good. Now I'll I'll take that of just being open. And there's so many opportunities to indeed do that. Um, starting from your sports club, starting in your gym, who you talk to in, in the gym, at church. Um, now, in fairness, it depends upon where you are in, let's say, within the United States or other parts of the world. Um, there will be certain congregations congregations that by necessity are white or are black mm -hmm. or are right. whatever, one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Depends on where you are in which town. But it does not mean to say that you could not uh, drive an hour and go maybe to a different church service in a part of town mm -hmm. where uh, maybe there is a different socioeconomic as well as a social kind of strata meeting and congregating. So it's yeah. actually, why not? And do that with an intentionality. Is that a word? Intentional? Do I to think so. be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds good. Um, so to actually make a, a journey out of it. Because if you say, well, I want to go to church and I really want to honor Jesus Christ and be there and hear his message, well, well, be okay. That is, you know, your pastor. Why not go to another ministry? Um, yeah. and that is actually quite an intriguing one. We did exactly that. My wife uh, has found Jesus Christ. Me, not so much. But when we were recently in Christchurch, we actually went to the Christchurch Cathedral and listened mm. to a uh, to a, um, a different uh, service there. And we both were actually quite taken by it. Uh, it was very, very different compared to to the service that she is normally used to. Um, mm. And but it was an eye opener. And for that, I appreciated it, even as a secular person, as a non-religious yeah. person. So my mind was open, my whole horizon widened that little bit. And for that, I'm very mm. grateful. So actually, mm. I 100% agree with you. Make new connections, go out there, turn up, just turn up for life and not just sort of let yourself drift in the current of your own stream which might very well never give you these opportunities but actually get off your little paddle boat and and maybe carry the boat to the next river over and see what what's happening there chances yeah. are you will be a better person for it well i love that i love that a lot actually oh you're an amazing woman laurie um you're an amazing woman who has gone through a lot in her life and you're now there cool as a cucumber uh coming up with all these bloody pearls of wisdom i am i'm i'm taken back here uh, you really <laughs> made me think today you really made me evaluate my own beliefs and that mm. is a good day when that happens because when you don't take things for granted but you actually question yourself and make sure mm -hmm. that that whatever you is coming out of your mouth or the actions that you take, that they are truly still fitting with the new you, who you want to be. I'm mm -hmm. only, I mean, I'm still, I still don't know who I want to be when I grow up. Um, I don't and, either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that is our, that's our strength. Um, so using gratitude and using using such insights as I gained today, uh, that 
can only move me in one direction, in the direction of the new person, that new human that I want to be. And so today is a good day. So I was absolutely right when I started this interview. Today is going to be a good day uh, because, <laughs> yes, I have grown. And I hope you guys out there, equally, you got you got as much out of this interview as me. Uh, Laurie, you're an amazing woman. Uh, the question now is, okay, where the hell are you going? I mean, you're already at such a such an advanced stage. Where will we see you in a year or in two years' time? Laurie for president. Yes. Yes. Now there's now there is something I want to see. Okay. Uh, well, what I have a lot of respect for the leader of yeah. New Zealand as well. But they would not, I mean, I'm not a citizen, so I couldn't, I couldn't uh, represent your, your No, no, no. I mean leader. for you. I mean for you. Yeah. Come on. It 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 can't boil down to Trump and Biden. Honestly, when, uh, <laughs> no, it I know, can't be. No. <laughs> no, I totally agree. But I don't know that I'm throwing my name in the hat anytime soon. American <laughs> politics are pretty, pretty awful. Uh, I do vote very regularly, even living overseas. I always mailed in my vote from overseas and I'm yeah. happy to do so. And I did not vote for Trump for the record, in case you're wondering. But <laughs> I would have been a surprise, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, I did not. I went to the U.S. Embassy in Singapore and probably voted for Hillary. I wish she would have won, but she didn't. So here we have this. But yes, no, I, where am I going to be next? I, um, I don't have a specific end in mind for myself. Um, so I, I used to be the kind of person that had kind of more year, five year, 10 year plans, mm. but obviously my life has thrown me a lot of curveballs. the tsunami being one, mm. uh, twins being another, <laughs> I have twins as my, we were going to have two kids, but we got buy one, get one free at the end. So that was a <laughs> real curveball. Yeah. So I think what life has taught me is to, um, you know, resource myself um, to get better as a person, as a human being, so that I have the tools for whatever comes my way. And mm. I definitely have, you know, goals about things here and there, but I don't hold the future very specifically or tightly because of, I think, how the journey has been for me. Um, yeah, I'm constantly trying to get better at my craft of podcasting. I would mm. love to see the A World of Difference podcast become a community where people really are teaching each other how to make a difference where we're growing and becoming better through our Facebook group and kind of joining each other with initiatives, mm. maybe somewhere in the future, having retreats in person or something that really kind of help those in person who want to get better. Exactly. Who knows in the future, if we would do conferences or bring mm. people around the table mm. to really help us learn. Um, we're kind of still young though in our world of difference podcasts. I've only mm. been doing it about a year and a half, but I've I'd love for that to grow. I work in business in a startup and I love coaching that I'm doing there as well. Um, it's a very purpose-driven mm. organization that I love working at. So, I mean, I could see myself staying there for a long time or I might move on to something else. It's also purpose-driven. You know, I, uh, I hold it all very loosely. Nobody saw the pandemic coming either. So we had to all pivot. And I would say that I had the skills to pivot because I'd pivoted a lot in my life. <laughs> so, um, I yeah. want to make sure that I'm the kind of person that knows how to handle change and, mm. and um, make the world a better place one day at a time. Mm. So. Which is beautiful. And I think that is, that is a very good uh, take home message. The only reason that we are who we are is we learned how to adapt to change and how to adapt to new challenges. And if you're very, very rigid or not equipped with such tools, then you, if you only have a hammer, you will treat everything as a nail. And that mm. often doesn't work well. 
So, and uh, I love it that you you uh, embrace the languages. You spoke, uh, you speak six languages. I spoke six languages because, regrettably, not being exposed to different societies in Europe, and that therefore my my the need or the ability of me to speak French or to speak other things is so it's going down the train. And maybe I'm focusing on different different abilities of myself. Um, mm. In uh, you know, there are only X amount of minutes in in a day, so maybe right. uh, you need to sometimes actually choose choose your battle and choose your mm. your growth where you want to go. But one way or the other, we all have got the opportunity to change this world, and I strongly believe in this. My mission is to make this world a better place. One interview, one project, one book at a time. And Laurie, your mission is the same. We both are here to do that. Now, if we could infuse maybe just one or two others who have listened today in this podcast to maybe do the same, come along on this mm. journey. You know, that's the good old, the good old chessboard and the gentleman who asked of the, of his king, please just for one, um, for the first chessboard, give you one bit of rice. For the second piece of the chessboard, give me two pieces of rice, then four, and so on, if, if that is okay with you. And uh, yeah, of course. And you know the outcome. There is not enough rice in this world to actually fill the last 64th of the <laughs> chess piece. So if we do the same, if we do the same, just influence uh, the people around us by our own integrity, humility, and authenticity, I think I we can make a difference. I think we can change this world. So please, guys, come along for the ride. Um, it's a fantastic ride. It's not easy. Well, no one says it's easy, but it is the best ride ever. I wouldn't miss it for the world, honestly. So, Laurie, thank you so much for for giving me hope, for for showing me that actually, yes, dream bigger, uh, that if you're not scared of your dreams, then they are not big enough. That holds so true. And you remind me of that. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Stefan. This has been amazing. It's nice to meet a Kiwi who's making a difference in that side of the world. So well, exactly. I'll hold on. I'll hang on to this side. You hang on to that side, and then we'll <laughs> somehow meet yes. in the middle. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? You guys yeah. out there, live with passion and look after yourself. Bye. <laughs>